The future is bright with promise because you're in it. And my word to you is don't give up. Don't give out. Don't give in. It is yours to make. And those who come after you will be very grateful for your witness and what you have done. The voice you just heard belongs to the late Reverend Peter J. Gomes, speaking to Harvard University in a 2010 keynote address on Harvard's transition to a more diverse community. Distinguished faculty member for four decades, senior minister at Memorial Church in Harvard Yard, Reverend Peter J. Gomes is remembered fondly for his spirited take on the world and serving as a moral compass for the community. Each year, one friend of the school and notable alumni are honored with a Gomes Award for bringing the Divinity School's vision, working in service of a just world at peace across religious and cultural divides to fruition. I'm Amy Monomira with Harvard Divinity School, and this is Divinity Dialogues, conversations on faith, purpose, and bearing witness. Today, we conclude this year's Gomes Award series with a special feature, a reflective conversation between Dean Hempton and our 2021 friend of the school, Drew Gilpin Faust. This is from her award ceremony in May. Faust holds several titles, including President Emerita of Harvard University and Arthur Kingsley Porter University Professor. She has also been a longtime partner and advocate for the Divinity School and was recognized as this year's friend of the school for her humane leadership guided by a profound commitment to collaboration and an unflinching attention to the past in service of a more just future. A production note, this online event took place in May 2021 over Zoom in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. The video can be watched in full on the HDS YouTube channel. Maybe start us off, uh, Drew, in our conversation. This award does carry the, the name of our mutual friend and colleague, Peter Gomes. And I, I know that we both have a fund of stories and engagements with uh, uh, Peter as a, as a larger-than-life person. So I was hoping you might be able to share a, a, a story about the, um, the person for whom this award is named. Let me start by just saying how honored I am to be awarded the designation friend of the school. I, I take that with great pride and also to have this award be in Peter's name because I know how much he meant to this school and to the university and to the world as a whole. So I'm really grateful for this recognition. So thank you so much. I was thinking about Peter in anticipation of today and remembering when I was named president, my appointment was announced and I was sitting in my office at the Radcliffe Institute where I was Dean and suddenly in swept Peter Gomes. And I mean swept because he was in his full <laughs> vestments. And if you recall his vestments, they were quite gaudy, shall I say often. I mean, he had a bright red outfit that he would wear to the honorance dinner and you know whatever kind of elaborate sewing and decoration was possible, Peter embraced it. So he came sweeping in in this outfit and went down on one knee and said, Madam, I'm here to pledge you my fealty. Now, no one had ever said anything <laughs> remotely like that to me, nor did I think I'd been named King or Queen of Harvard, but this was Peter's way of making a statement and making an impression that was unforgettable. And it was just kind of perfect Peter because it was both 
the embodiment of his theatricality, his deep roots in tradition and the past, but also his desire to say something significant about his dedication to Harvard and its new president, who he hoped would succeed and, and support the university that meant so much to him. So that's, that's one of my favorite Peter Gomes uh, memories. Who else but Peter would have thought to do such a thing? <laughs> I um, also have many memories of Peter, but one thing I will say is that when I moved here from Boston University before I became dean, I, I have this memory of, of chatting with him just outside Memorial Hall, uh, giving me all kinds of wise advice about you know how to settle into Harvard, but also a tremendous amount of personal warmth and engagement uh, that he really cared about. Uh, the people um, uh, really cared about helping me that he didn't know very well settle into a new community. And so I, I have many um, memories, including the, the famous, uh, I think it was Tuesday afternoon teas and sports mm -hmm. and, um, and his wonderful library full of interesting devotion to the, the British royal family of all things. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he wished I had been named King, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, that might have been uh, true. But it's <laughs> so good to, to remember him in this way. So, Drew, it's, it's um, well, three years since you stepped down as, as, as president of Harvard, which hopefully has afforded you a little time for reflection and a little bit, a bit of time for recovery. I'd like to ask, what did you enjoy most, or, or perhaps more realistically, what did you find to be the most rewarding part of, of, of the job of being president at, at Harvard, as you look back on your time here? Well, Harvard is such a remarkable place and filled with people of such great talent that for me, watching them realize the possibilities in their talents and then demonstrate those talents, whether it was in a seminar that made an intellectual point, in a scientific announcement, in a theatrical performance, and you know whatever it was that members of this community were doing that they had dedicated themselves to and that Harvard had in some way as an institution helped support, just thrilled me. And mm -hmm. to be able to help unleash that talent and contribute to the support of that talent was for me the most meaningful part of the, the, my presidency. And the rewards were great when you saw it, saw it happening before you. Yeah, yeah. I, re I remember certainly, um, I, I used to love reading your baccalaureate addresses, which you gave each year to the undergraduates, where you sent them on their way with a, a word of wisdom. What I really appreciated about those, I think, was, was just getting at something deeper than mere Harvard accomplishments, but something really, you know, deep in their spirits that they could take with them out into the world. Uh, I remember, you know, that your talk, I think it must have been soon after the Boston Marathon bombing, we yeah. encouraged our students to, you know, to, to run towards things of need and to, um, and to serve in that way. And there were many others like that as well. We asked our students to notice things and to be part of something bigger than themselves. So I and I'm really grateful for those observations. Well, I loved that assignment, the baccalaureate assignment. I mean, you hear you have this more or less captive audience because most of the students feel this is something they ought to come to for their graduation week. So they pack Memorial Church. And you look out and you think, these people are going to have such an impact on the world. I don't know what they're going to do. They may be you know, concert pianists. They may be presidents of the United States, quite literally. They may be, you know, who knows? 
climate change activists who ultimately bring us to a new place in relationship to the environment. And you get 20 minutes to say some parting words to them. So it always seemed to me such a privilege and a challenge to think about what is it that I want them to take away. And you mentioned a couple of those talks, David, but there was one talk, it was probably the spring after Peter died. I think Peter died in the winter, maybe February, January, February. And that years back, and of course he was always at my side during the baccalaureate during the time that he was the minister of the church. And so I was feeling his absence very deeply and had a section in the talk where I cited Peter as someone who never let somebody else complete his sentences in the, in a metaphorical way. You couldn't assume because Peter was X, he was also Y. He loved being a contradiction. He loved being, as he put it, an Afro-Saxon. He loved being a Baptist preacher who was in full vestments of, as if he were the Episcopal bishop. He loved being a gay Republican. I mean, it's just the things that he embodied, each one was a decision and a authentic commitment. And he didn't feel pressed to be one thing because he was already something else. And so I tried to convey that to the students, you know, be your authentic selves in the way that mm -hmm. Peter was. Peter once described himself, maybe often described himself as an oddity. And yeah. so, you know, I said, don't be afraid to be an oddity and put together things in whatever way is right for you, not how you're told they ought to be put together. Yeah, no, those are good. Those are good observations. Do you ever think of, I mean, I, 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 you've obviously given a lot of speeches when you were president. Do you ever think of putting them together in a little volume or anything? Or, 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 or do you think that they're maybe past their moment of urgency? Or? I don't know. I, I guess without... Um, being unkind to those who have put together books of speeches. When I read them, I always said to myself, I'm never going to do this because they do pass their moment. And um, they're often very particular in their, mm -hmm. in their crafting. They're all available online. If anyone wants to go look at them, you can just find them on the president's, the history of the Harvard presidency page. Mm -hmm. So they're there for in an archival form. I think my, my response has been to teach a course on, on American speeches because I did think about giving speeches so much and thought about how to do it and what worked when I was president. I thought, well, this is something I've learned in the last 10 years that maybe I can share. So I do a course on kind of the history of American speeches, which is very much informed by my experiences yeah. giving all those talks. It sounds like a fun, fun class. So moving from fun to maybe slightly less fun, what do you look back on as, as being the most challenging aspect of of being president at Harvard uh, during your um, stint, which was, uh, what, 10, 11 years, really? You were, you were 11, yeah, yeah, 11. Yeah, yeah. Well, I began in 2007, in July of 2007. So I had one year to kind of find my footing. And it was after an interim year by Derek Brock. So things had been somewhat disrupted and out of sync at Harvard. And so I tried to settle everything down in my first year. But then all of a sudden there came the financial crisis of 2008. Mm -hmm which in retrospect now looks like a very small crisis in comparison to what my successor has been facing over the last year and a half. But at the time, uh, the endowment dropped by almost 30% and the endowment provides, you know, about a third of the annual budget for the university. So we had to really think about what this meant. We didn't know where it was going, you know, whether we come out of it or not. And so managing that, I think, was a very unexpected and challenging crisis for me. But it also forced Harvard to ask questions about itself that 
that shaped my whole presidency in, in that it was a kind of wind at my back to make certain kinds of changes that I don't think would have been imaginable without that crisis. One was change in the governance structures and the way the corporation was structured and operates. So that was one. The one Harvard measures that became so much a purpose of my presidency really grew out of the necessity for collaboration at a moment when everybody was back on their heels. So it had some, some good aspects that emerge from having to mm-hmm. confront difficulties. Mm-hmm. There's another way to look at your question though, which is, I mean, that's an event that was, that was a special mm-hmm. challenge. But, but I think one of the ongoing challenges for any university president is there's so many different stakeholders, constituencies in a university with differing views and differing experiences, faculty, staff, students, alumni, the communities in which we're located, the national context in which we operate, the international context in which we operate, that you're always having to listen really hard and try to figure out how to reconcile all the loud voices that are coming at you from these different directions. And and so I think that is a challenge of university leadership that was a matter for constant attention for me. Yeah, it sounds like, you know, your your first point you make of, you know, never waste a good crisis, really, in terms of, you know, an op- uh, treating it as an opportunity. Um, I used to bump into you quite a bit on, you know, when you were president, I was dean, uh, during the capital campaign of, of, you know, representing Harvard in different parts of the world. I just wonder if you'd speak just a, a few minutes to that, and maybe even an, an incident or a person or a place that, that particularly you know stands out to you as being an ambassador for Harvard in, in the wider world. It was for me an extraordinary opportunity to have the chance to go to all these different parts of the world where Harvard was very meaningful to people and places that I'd never been and places that I always made sure I had a kind of little mini course on before I traveled. I'd get faculty to come and have a seminar with me and I'd get them to give me reading lists. So I turned it into something of an intellectual exercise as well as a presidential duty. A couple of very meaningful trips for me. One very late in my presidency, I went to Vietnam. And that is a place I had always wanted to go because it had been such a force, the very thought of Vietnam and the reality of the the war had been such a force in my adolescence and and young adulthood. And all the names were so familiar from the news every night and the newspapers and so forth that I had longed to go. And so I I did. And there were many aspects of that that I found unforgettable. But one of the aspects of it that was so striking to me is that, you know, you think about what Harvard does here, there in the world. And I knew that Harvard had been involved through the Kennedy School in supporting Vietnam after the end of the American War. But I had not realized how important that support had proved to be in Vietnam until I saw the kind of reception that I was given. The prime minister really went out of his way to make sure that his schedule enabled him to meet with me. And essentially, I learned that the activities and advice from Harvard faculty in the early 90s were crucial to setting up an economy that enabled Vietnam to come out of the the real crisis and doldrums of the post-war period and become the, as you know, very vibrant economic force that it is today. And so I was just kind of awestruck that this is one of many, many things that Harvard faculty and the Harvard University has done in the world. And that even though no one had had held it up to me as this is the most important thing Harvard's ever done. For people in Vietnam, it was just enormously important. And 
I was received as connected to it with great gratitude. And so that, that was really memorable. Other kinds of memorable moments. Well, I met twice with Xi Jinping, once before he became the head of state in China when he was kind of very early in my presidency. And then once quite late in my presidency. That was unforgettable for several reasons. One is the beginning of the conversation. When you have a conversation with a Chinese leader, you sit in a horseshoe, you are at his right at the top of the horseshoe and your staff or whoever's with you are arrayed in rank. You have to tell what rank they have. So for example, if I'd had several deans with me, I would have had to rank the deans. Wouldn't that have been terrible? So they're on the right and then his staff's on the left and there's a translator And so everything, he speaks a little speech, that's translated, I respond, that's translated. So it's very formal, very structured. I was told that actually he spoke very good English in all probability and so that he was getting double time to figure out what to say in response to me because he'd hear me say it, then he'd hear the translator say it. Anyway, we're going through this whole ritual. We start talking about climate change because he and, and Obama had just signed this agreement to work together on climate change. And I felt what a wonderful thing to be talking about how universities might be able to help with this challenge. And I'd just spoken at Tsinghua, which is his alma mater, a very scientifically based institution that is doing a lot on climate and we have various programs. So I was thrilled to be talking about this extremely important issue with one of the most powerful men in the world. And then he turned to me or to the, to the translator and he said, I want to thank you for taking care of my daughter while she was at Harvard. Now, his daughter had been an undergraduate at Harvard, graduated just a year or so beforehand, and was, came under a pseudonym, so people didn't know who she was. And I was not going to bring it up, because I thought if he didn't want it known, I didn't want to you know, blow his cover. But he said, thank you. And I, I said back to him, thank you for entrusting her to us. And thank you for believing in us as a parent. And he got all choked up. And he was just visibly moved personally by this interchange about his daughter and her college experience at Harvard. And I thought, well, I'm not going to forget this one, you know, this force in the world who's also just a Harvard dad. So that's something that, that was very memorable for me. Well, those are great stories, and I, I, I sense the world's going to need more of those kind of um, bridges and empathetic mm-hmm. things, really, it's, uh, mm-hmm. as we see more and more. So I think Harvard, you know, it's just a, is a remarkable institution. I, I felt the same even in a more humble way, you know, moving it to different parts of, of the world. And just the reputation of the university and its force for good is is a very humbling thing. And, and by the way, Drew, I know I would have been first in the line of deans, really. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. You have God on your side, David. We were exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's been you know three three years now since you've you, since you've stepped down. Are, are there trends that you were seeing in higher education during your time as president that um, were disturbing at the time or were difficult at the time that you see continuing and and so on? Or do you do you keep abreast of what's going on in the world of higher education and so on? Or, or, or how do you think about that? Are you, are you glad to be in a different uh, role right now? <laughs> well, this is such a difficult time. And people often say to me, you certainly pick the right time to step down. I have enormous sympathy for my successor. And he and I talk often. And uh, he asked me to chair a committee for him, which I'm doing. It's the least I can do, given all that he's had to face. So I feel 
glad to be where I am instead of where I was at this particular moment. I keep up sort of about higher education, but I do see it as a chapter, higher education leadership is a chapter that is over and that I now have a chance to do some other things. I serve on the MIT Corporation. So that's a way that I keep my hand in and, and mm-hmm. hope to use my uh, experience and knowledge in a positive way. And people around the university call me from time to time. But I've been devoting my real attention to trying to write a book and trying to get back into some some semblance of scholarship and, and teaching again. And, and that's been a great joy for me because it was what occupied most of my professional life before Neil Rudenstein mm-hmm. lured me to Radcliffe back in 2001. So tell us a little bit more, Drew, about your book and about your teaching. I mean, what have you enjoyed most about returning to the life as a scholar teacher at Harvard? And, and tell us a little bit about the project you're engaged in. Well, I was never a teacher at Harvard in any real sense. I taught a course occasionally when I was Radcliffe Dean and I had some graduate students because a faculty member in the history department who did civil war died and I inherited his graduate students back in the early 2000s. But I basically devoted myself to my administrative roles at Radcliffe and Harvard. So I'd never had the privilege of being in a classroom with Harvard students. And I wasn't sure at the end of my presidency whether I did want to do that. I thought maybe it's just, you know, take, make a clean break and kind of go away in January and February. That seems very appealing when you think about New England in those years, you know, just have your life organized around something other than the academic calendar. But then I thought, I, I don't want to have missed this. And so I've been teaching courses, undergraduate seminars in several topics. And I've just so enjoyed these students and how bright they are, how inspiring they are, how in a time that's been pretty dark time, if you think of you know, the political scene since I stepped down in 2018, not to mention the pandemic, these students give you hope for the future. And, and so I have relished the chance to learn from them and share some of my ancient wisdoms insofar as it exists uh, with them on topics of interest to, to us both. And tell us a little bit about your, your book project. I mean, what, what, what are you writing about? What, what engages your attention now as a historian? Well, I'm writing a, something that's quite different from anything I've done before, though I guess you could say there are a couple of magazine pieces that I've written that paved the way for this. I'm writing a history memoir of growing up in the 1950s and 60s. And when I say history memoir, it's both my own memories, but also the context that somebody who has been a historian all her life might include and mm-hmm. surround those personal memories with. Mm-hmm. So it's situated within a scholarly literature and a, a I hope, deep examination of what that, uh, that era was. I wanted to do this because I felt that not only is my generation, if I'll say our generation, David, rapidly mm-hmm. parting from the scene, but that I felt a lot of the memories and renditions of that era were not accurate. They were kind of off in a way. And so I wanted to be a witness in something of the way that so many people have been from the past have been witnesses to me. In my historical work, what I've done is listen to voices from the Civil War era, from the 19th century, and try to understand how they construed their world. I now want to be one of those voices and try to construe this world of the 1950s and 60s for those who came after it and did not see it firsthand. 
And that for me includes a lot about gender, mm-hmm. what it was like being a little girl growing up in Virginia and the kinds of limitations that were placed on me. Mm-hmm. It's about being white and growing mm-hmm. up in a segregated society when things were beginning to change, but not nearly fast enough. Mm-hmm. It's about being a student in the 1960s, growing up in the Cold War era of the 1950s with bomb shelters and and anxieties about Russia and Sputnik and so forth. But then coming of age in the Vietnam era, when students were challenging many of these assumptions that had been fed to them as children. So that's what I've been working on. And the pandemic has changed it in ways that I didn't anticipate, good ways, because here I am sitting in Cambridge with my Zoom instrument. And I've been finding all these people from my past and interviewing them on Zoom. And I don't think I would have imagined that I could go travel to see them all. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I hadn't expected to do so much in the way of interviews. That's become a part, a central part of it. So that that sounds like a a fascinating project. You passed on to me a while ago, uh, uh, an essay you'd written for the Atlantic, I think. 2019 about, I think it was called Race History and Memories of a Virginia Girlhood or, or something like that. And I, I think it's a really brilliant piece, actually. It's beautifully written and very moving. You, you said something in that piece that got my attention. You said that you started noticing the deep structural inequalities of Virginia society as a young girl. And then you write as a nine-year-old at an all-white segregated school. You were outraged that I only now understood that I had been somehow implicated in this without awareness. And I've wondered since whether I was motivated in part by my growing recognition of my own disadvantage as a girl whose mother insisted I learn to accept that I live in a man's world. Um, which is kind of interesting, you know, a set of observations. One is that you started noticing quite early in your, uh, in your life the, the kind of structural, deeply embedded, almost politish forms at times racism that, that, that got your attention, but it, it, it obviously got your attention very early in your life. And that along with, you know, the sense of yourself as a, as a young girl in a man's world as well. I mean, it, it does seem like those two things almost, you know, coming into your consciousness together were really big shapers of how you've viewed the world since and even your own writing since. I think that's really true. And I take it back to a principle that is one so common among little kids, which is this isn't fair. Things should be fair. Mm -hmm. And I think it began with that. It's not fair that my brothers get to do X, Y, and Z, and I don't. And once I realized that Black people couldn't do things that white people could, that wasn't fair either. And and so I was so angry always about things that weren't fair. And I, I think I still have a a certain element of that. When I would be criticized, you know, I get letters criticizing me as president all the time. And what I really drew, that was fine. Criticism's fine. But when someone misrepresented something and then criticized me for it, I'd find myself saying in my office, that isn't fair. You know, it's not a fair <laughs> fight if they make it up. I think I still find that a, a real motivation of what is fair. Yeah. Uh, and that's, that encompasses what you described. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, obviously, I grew up in a somewhat similar generation, but obviously a very different 
place in, in Belfast and Northern Ireland, but, but some, some things that connect with this, you know, I grew up in a very working class Ulster Protestant family. Um, so on the one hand, I was part of a discriminatory regime, if you like, against um, uh, Irish Catholics, which I again began to realize that, you know, maybe a bit later than, than you did, but certainly, you know, when I was in, you know, mid-teen years, but also a sense that, you know, my parents were really very humble. My father was a bread salesman. My mother was a seamstress, you know, so that they were not at the top of any particular heap. So I had a sense of social class and not being part of the kind of unionist Anglo-Irish landowning ascendant who was running the politics. Mm-hmm. But on another level, I was, you know, I, I was the Ulster Protestant, not the Irish Catholic. Um, and I think those interstitial, you know, ambiguous um, uh, areas of life, once you start to notice them early in your life, are really big shapers. Mm-hmm. My own PhD was on, you know, evangelical anti-Catholicism. You know, I was really interested to figure out how anti-Catholicism happens and where it comes from and why it played the role it did in, in the society I was growing up in. And, and I did get the sense from your article or from your essay in The Atlantic and also from this memoir that, you know, that that, that early formation in Virginia and through your early education has had a big bearing on the kind of historian you became, mm-hmm. the questions you got interested in, um, and the kind of, I don't know, complexity that you see in, 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 in these things, that, that, that there are deep structures that underpin some of the things we're talking about, race, for example, that, um, that, that need to be analyzed and faced up to. I mean, you finished an mm-hmm. uh, essay with a quote from James Baldwin about the need to face up to one's, to the history of this country but before you can begin to overcome it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's what drove me to be a historian. And I was so interested in what you just said, David, about your choice of a thesis topic, because my choice of a PhD thesis topic was to look at white Southerners who defended slavery in the 19th century and how they could possibly do that. How could they tell themselves that they were Christians, that they were virtuous people and defend this indefensible institution? And what I was doing there, I think, was projecting my own life back a century, asking deeply about people all around me in Virginia in the 1950s, my parents, my aunts and uncles, my schoolmates and their parents, who were defending a segregationist society in 1951, two, three, four, five, six. And mm. how, how do people do that? How do they blind themselves to what seems such evident injustices? And how do we convince ourselves of things as human beings that um, mm. when you look back seem unimaginable? So I, I, I do think that those experiences shaped my desire to understand power and privilege and the power and privileges of race and how they've operated in our country. And that a lot of what I've written about is about the complexities of human beings who uh, are, see themselves and are seen by many others as decent people who do unspeakable things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, Drew, where do you think we are as a country around issues of race? I know, you know, one of the the, the 
the people I got to meet through you, who, who I thought was just a magnificent person, as uh, 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 John Lewis, um, uh, who I know was a personal friend and, and someone who, you know, contributed a great deal to um, um, your understanding of, 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 of where we are as a country. I mean, are you, do, do you have a sense of optimism about the future around these issues of, of, of race and inclusion and belonging or... Or are you? Because um, uh, one of the things that struck me from your, your your essay was just how long this problem has been. You know, right from those first twenty or so slaves that came into Virginia in 1619, right through the various different episodes to the present day. So, uh, how do you think about that in terms of? Well, I veer between optimism and despair. Mm -hmm. um, optimism in that. This moment of racial reckoning, reckoning is such a good word for what needs to happen. And I think what is going on in many ways, a, a recognition that these problems are structural and they're not going to be changed until we really dig deep into understanding how those structures came into place and how we dislodge the structures, not just men's hearts and souls. We've got to change more than just individual mm -hmm. attitudes. And I think people are recognizing that now. But we're also at a moment where we're so polarized that the fact that there is this recognition is enhancing the resistance of another part of the population to that recognition. And we see mm -hmm. violence and um, mm. just outrageous statements. The three-fifths clause was in... <laughs> was created to end slavery, somebody in, in uh, a politician announced a few days ago. I mean, just absurd. So how do we move towards a place that is better and overcome that resistance? Now, in my hopeful moments, I think, well, maybe this is just the last gasp of resistance to a society that is dramatically transformed from the time I was a child mm -hmm. in its demographics, in what's possible to imagine. You know, interracial marriage was illegal in Virginia until 1969. You know, just things like that have, have changed. And I believe that there's been real pushback. And, and this goes beyond just black and white. This is also, we see violence against Asian Americans who were not even a significant presence in American society until after the immigration law of 1965. So we've welcomed people to our shores and then turned around and created a whole new element of, or enhanced element of, hardly new, but enhanced um, element of prejudice. Mm. What about homophobia, which, you know, no one even spoke about such things when I was a child. And now we have marriage equality, but we also have all this pushback. So is the pushback a product of progress? And therefore, will we move through it and overcome it? Or is it a real slide back into the darkness of of an earlier earlier era yeah 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 the thing about being a historian is that we're always better at reflecting than we are um at answering questions yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i could talk uh, all day about uh, about these things, very interesting observations but maybe i'd like to circle back just um, before we close on on harvard and the divinity school just once again to express my gratitude to you uh, for deep emphasis on one Harvard. You know, I think every single dean that I served with and continue to serve with uh, really felt 
part of a bigger whole at, at Harvard, that we were all in something really important together. And, and, and that's still the case and uh, under um, uh, Larry Backhouse's wonderful leadership as well. Um, but I, 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 I tremendously enjoyed that part of it um, and always had a sense that you were supporting our school in, in both publicly and privately. Um, I was kind of just wondering, you know, as we, uh, as I look out on this, you know, effectively new campus that will be delivered to us in a couple of months' time, what do you think about the Divinity School and, and its role at Harvard or its role in the wider world or what, what you would like to see us do or, or what do you think the significance of a Divinity School in a university like Harvard is? I'd love to hear your reflections on that. Well, David, the one Harvard part of it is central in, in the following way. I, I see the Divinity School as lifting our sights to think about the bigger questions, not how is X or Y piece of knowledge or piece of learning or degree going to advance me in the immediate term. But how does all this contribute to the larger questions, which are about our fundamental humanity and the kind of world we want to have? And so that element of spirituality, of the big picture, of what does life mean? It seems to me the Divinity School embodies that. And the relationships you have with other schools represent that. The notion of religion and public life, the mm. collaborations with the business school, how do we have economic growth and, and economic activity that also is ethical and principled. Um, the relationships, of course, with the medical school where questions of life and death are central to their concerns as they are to yours. So you interject, inject a, a kind of perspective on what goes on in every part of this university that seems to me invaluable. And I can't tell you how excited I am to see Swartz Hall when it's finished. And you sent me some wonderful photographs, but that seems to me to represent the embodiment of your purpose of a place that you come together as a community and hash out the values that inspire you. And one of the wonderful things about the Divinity School at Harvard is it's so uh, multi-faith and international in its commitments that, that it's a kind of force for peace and harmony and comedy with a T all unto itself. So um, that for me is, is an essential part of what you do and what Harvard needs to have done. Thank you so much. It sounds like you've just auditioned to become the next dean of the Divinity School. <laughs> <laughs> So, so get that memoir written as soon as possible. True. Okay. <laughs> um, so, um, so much enjoyed the conversation as we, as I always do. Um, I, I'm sorry that it's it's on Zoom and not in person, but so appreciative of of your time and your insights and just your humane um, uh, leadership uh, that you've exercised at, at Harvard, both as uh, dean of Radcliffe and as president. Thank you, David. It's really fun to talk. Many thanks to Dean Hempton and President Emerita Drew Gilpinfaust for their time, their insight, and their leadership. And thanks to you for tuning in to this special edition series and honoring the stories of our alumni and the Harvard Divinity School community. This podcast came together with the help of some remarkable colleagues, including Carolyn Cataldo with her editing and producing expertise, Kristen Pont with her exceptional work with the Gomes Awards event, and folks across the communications and development teams at the school. And here's your end of episode reminder to follow HDS on SoundCloud 
or subscribe to Harvard Divinity School on your favorite podcast platform to make sure you never miss a new episode. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube to learn more about HDS and our amazing community. Until next time.